This episode contains scenes of a sexual nature. It's Silicon Valley in 2007. If you work in tech, chances are when you wake up in the morning, you check Valleywag, the Gawker-owned gossip blog dedicated to stories from the tech world. And chances are you know who Peter Thiel is. In 2007, he's best known for co-founding PayPal and being the very first investor in a little company called Facebook. He's worth $1.2 billion. And this morning, the headline in Valleywag is about him. The headline is not subtle. Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. With a few keystrokes, Peter Thiel has been outed very publicly. Is this legal? Yes. Is it ethical? Questionable. Teal is shocked when he first sees the post. While his sexuality isn't exactly a secret, at least amongst Silicon Valley's in-crowd, he's never shared it publicly. And he has business dealings with companies around the world that don't know and could feel differently about him now that they do. In a perfect world, Teal's sexuality wouldn't even be a point of discussion. But Valleywag just made it one. Worse, they treated it as gossip. They took a deeply personal decision about when and how Teal might want to share details about his personal life and aired it out in public as if it was dirty laundry. Two years later, the pain of this still seems fresh when Silicon Valley reporter Connie Loizos sits down with Peter Thiel. Did you ever imagine that you'd be the subject of conversation on gossip blogs like Valleywag? It's disturbing to me that there are people who are so angry out there. Maybe I'm wrong and did something terrible to them, but I'm not particularly flattered by being targeted. I think it's sort of the psychology of a terrorist where it's purely destructive and that Valleywag is the Silicon Valley equivalent of Al-Qaeda. You think Valleywag is like a terrorist organization? I think they should be described as terrorists, not as writers or reporters. I don't understand the psychology of people who would kill themselves and blow up buildings. And I don't understand people who would spend their lives being angry. It just seems unhealthy. So, for the record, Peter Thiel is also totally not angry at Gawker Media, right? Wrong. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. From Wondery, I'm Hill Harper, and this is Legal Wars. 
This is the last of our three-episode series about Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against Gawker Media. By all accounts, the trial has not gone well for Gawker. Terry Bollea's lawyers have consistently painted the Gawker journalists as insensitive, sarcastic bottom feeders, and the Florida jury has been eating it up. Now, the lawyers have one final chance to make their case in closing arguments. Today, on Friday, March 18th, Turkle takes the floor for Bollea. The heavy-set hometown lawyer approaches the jury box. He paints a picture of a toxic environment at Gawker Media, filled with a bunch of young kids breaking rules and doing indecent things. By posting the sex tape, he argues, Gawker breached one of Bollea's last bastions of personal privacy. And isn't everyone, even a celebrity, entitled to just a little bit of privacy? Terry Bollea, the person you know, he's a regular family guy who has been lucky to have had some success in his life. When his wife left him, he was so sad that he hadn't had a home-cooked meal. That's the person. And you know, the person has every right, every right to keep whatever precious private moments they have in their life. He can't trust a lot of people. He can't have a lot of friends because everybody wants the actor. They want the character. They want Hulk Hogan. And behind closed doors, he's just a guy who was sad he hadn't had a home-cooked lunch. It's an impassioned plea for civility, for humanity, and for a wife who cooks for you. This was never about news. This was nothing but a morbid and sensational prying into Terry Bollea's life that Gawker didn't have the common decency to call even one person who was involved in the video before they posted the story tells you as much as you need to know about Gawker and whether the company deserves protection under our First Amendment. It's a tough act to follow, not least because Turkle has gone over his allotted amount of time and the jurors are tired. One of them has a cold. Gawker's attorney, Michael Sullivan, is next. He knows he needs to give the jury something more stirring than a heady argument about the First Amendment. So he uses the closing argument to go after Bollea himself. Sullivan tells the jury that the sex tape isn't that big a deal anyway. I mean, the picture quality wasn't even that good. Sullivan is a slight man with white hair and round wire-framed glasses, and he speaks slowly, earnestly, using his hands to emphasize points. The video Gawker posted is not like a real celebrity sex tape. It's not like Kim Kardashian. It's not in color. You don't see close-ups of body parts. You don't see graphic sex acts in vivid detail. Here, nine seconds. Nine seconds of sexual activity, dark, grainy video. That's it. You can almost hear Sullivan rolling his eyes. His argument is basically that it's not so bad because it could have been worse. Then he reminds the jury, that Hogan himself had made the tape newsworthy by talking about it in public for months. In other words, he was asking for it. Nick Denton sits in the front row, listening to his lawyer's last stand, hoping that the jury chooses his story. But maybe Nick doesn't like his chances, because that same day, Gawker puts out a statement stating they haven't had a fair trial. 
The jury verdict is not yet in, and already one side is crying foul. Sullivan looks at the jury, pleading. He really believes in his case. He believes it is important. We don't need the First Amendment to protect what's popular. We need the First Amendment to protect what's controversial. Sullivan leaves the floor. He said all he could. The trial is over. Court is adjourned. And the four women and two men in the jury retire to a private room for deliberation. Before we get to that verdict, there's one little maneuver by Hogan's lawyers that we should mention. See, Gawker's lawyers had been having another public argument with their insurance company. At first, the insurance company denies that they have to cover Gawker's legal bills or damages under the existing insurance policy. Gawker fights back, claiming that since Hulk Hogan felt emotionally injured by the post, the lawsuit is covered under a clause that insures Gawker against bodily injury. Basically, they're saying that Hogan's emotional distress from the post is the same as someone getting physically injured at their office. We'll never know whether that argument would have stuck. Because before Gawker can get a ruling on it, Hogan's lawyers cleverly dropped the claim from their lawsuit that he suffered emotional distress. It was an unusual move. Why change the lawsuit in the middle of the case? The reason? It basically assured that Gawker will have to pay any damages out of its own pocket if it loses. Nick Denton and his team are suspicious. It's a sophisticated legal tactic and a particularly vengeful move on Hogan's part. Eliminating the insurance company seems to run against Hogan's interest if the jury awards him a significant judgment. As the trial unfolded, Denton felt that someone else must be involved behind the scenes. Someone with even more money and more of an axe to grind than even Hulk Hogan. Hogan's lawyers are too high-powered, too prepared, and too seemingly out for revenge. But who could that be? Nick knows Gawker has created a lot of enemies over the years. Dropping the emotional distress claim, which dooms Gawker's insurance coverage, is a move that's far too clever for a wrestler to pull off on his own. Maybe he's being paranoid. But Nick's convinced that, yes, someone else must be behind this lawsuit. Jurors can take days or even weeks to render a verdict as they review the evidence and argue over their opinions. So everyone is settled in for a long wait. But only six hours after the jury was sent to deliberate, court is called back into session. Six hours isn't a lot of time for debate. Bolea and his team head back into the courthouse, worried. Usually a fast verdict means a ruling in favor of the defendant. In this case, Gawker. This doesn't look good for them. At 5 p.m., Bolea and Denton pass the throng of reporters and head into the courtroom one last time. Bolea takes his seat next to his lawyers and lowers his chin. Nick Denton sits in the gallery next to A.J. Delario, behind Gawker's legal team. From her seat on the bench, the judge turns to the jury. Have you reached a unanimous verdict? We have. The courtroom is silent as the judge motions for the paperwork and reads over their ruling. 
there are five counts the jury is asked to decide, ranging from publication of private facts to intentional infliction of emotional distress. After the judge has read their decision, she hands the papers over to the bailiff for the reading of the verdict. We, the jury, return the following verdict. Did plaintiff prove that posting the video, the defendants publicly disclosed private facts about plaintiff that a reasonable person would find highly offensive? Yes. Did the plaintiff prove that the video was not a matter of public concern? Yes. Did the plaintiff prove that posting video caused severe emotional distress? Yes. Did plaintiff prove that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the bedroom where the video was recorded? Yes. On all five counts, the jury finds in favor of Terry Bollea. It's a stunning outcome. Denton's expression is stoic, unreadable, but Bollea begins to sob. He's sobbing so violently he snorts. He's shaking. He wipes tears from his face and begins to hug his attorneys. The only thing Gawker can hope for now is that the damages will be less than the $100 million Hogan asked for. It's an astronomical sum for a case like this. As Bollea pulls himself together, he hardly hears as the jury awards $55 million in compensatory damages. That is the money he could have made by selling the tape himself and an additional $60 million for emotional damages. That is more than the $100 million Balea asked for, and more than enough to break Gawker. And maybe that was the whole point. Thursday, March 4th in St. Petersburg, Florida. Less than a week after delivering a verdict, six ordinary-looking people sit in front of an antique glass cabinet in someone's dining room. There's a camera in the room, but they avoid looking at it, looking instead at each other or at the floor. These are the six jurors who, less than a week ago, delivered the verdict in the Gawker case. They're sitting down with ABC News' Lindsay Janice. Despite their nerves, after two weeks listening to other people's opinions, they're relieved to be allowed, finally, to give theirs. How did you feel about Gawker's First Amendment argument? It wasn't applicable. If we were all in the same circumstances, how would we feel about it? Did any of you think that Hulk Hogan might have been behind the tape? There still is no right to put that out there if he doesn't want it put out. He's still a human being like everyone else, no matter how many people know his name or his face. Gawker made it clear to everyone that they were all about crossing the line. It just wasn't about punishment of these individuals and Gawker, you had to do it enough where it makes an example in society and other media organizations. The jurors felt that they needed to send a message that Gawker regularly crossed a line. By awarding Hogan even more than he asked for, the jurors wanted Gawker to suffer. And it turned out they weren't the only ones. When the trial is over, a rumor begins to circulate that a wealthy Silicon Valley investor may have secretly funded Bollea's legal action against Gawker. On May 24, 2016, Forbes breaks the news that the rumors are true. Remember how Peter Thiel couldn't understand people who spend their lives being angry? 
Turns out, he spent the last eight years being angry at Gawker. Very angry. It's May 25th, 2016. Peter Thiel is in his office. He sits down with Andrew Ross Sorkin, a financial journalist at the New York Times, and breaks his silence to confirm the rumors. Peter Thiel, Silicon Valley billionaire, has been secretly funding Hulk Hogan's entire lawsuit against Gawker. Why? Why spend so much money defending someone else? What's in it for you? Nothing. It was the right thing to do, and I could afford to do it. Look, Gawker's had a long history of targeting people unfairly. They have been a singularly terrible bully. They famously outed you as gay in 2007. They did, yes. That's a long time to hold a grudge. Teal tells Sorkin this isn't about him, and it isn't about revenge. It's about deter- Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Turing the kind of attack journalism gawker practices. People are worried. They're saying this case represents a huge loss for the First Amendment, that in winning, Hulk Hogan has endangered our freedom of speech. I refuse to believe that journalism means massive privacy violations. I think much more highly of journalists than that. It's precisely because I respect journalists that I do not believe they are endangered by fighting back against Gawker. It's tough to know whether or not Bollea knew where the funds were coming from or just how important Teal's cash was for his case. The cost of going to trial was about $10 million. Bolea is a wealthy man, but not that wealthy. And $10 million is a lot of money to risk, even for a celebrity. But it's safe to say that without Teal's bankroll, Bolea may not have pursued a trial at all. Like so many other libel cases, he probably would have settled for much less, much faster. And it turns out, there were other libel cases against Gawker Teal was funding, though he won't say which ones. It's Gawker, so there isn't a shortage of angry targets to choose from. And several of the suits were rep by the same lawyers who rep Bollea at his trial. According to Forbes, Hulk Hogan's lawyers have made suing Gawker its bread and butter. We can't possibly know what the outcome of this trial would have been without Peter Teal. All we do know is that Teal had been looking for a way to bring Gawker to its knees. And he found an unlikely vehicle in Hulk Hogan. After the verdict, Denton makes a statement on his own website, Gawker.com. I want to thank our lawyers for their outstanding work. And I am confident that we would have prevailed at trial if we had been allowed to present the full case to the jury. That's why we feel very positive about the appeal that we have already begun preparing as we expect to win this case ultimately. He presses publish. 
It will be one of the last posts he ever publishes on Gawker. Denton's threats of appeal are as empty as Gawker's coffers. There's no money to continue the legal fight. Gawker, the company, declares bankruptcy. Nick Denton personally declares bankruptcy. That move temporarily protects them from Hogan seizing their assets. But editor A.J. Delario can't afford to declare bankruptcy. A bankruptcy lawyer costs $30,000, and he has just $1,500 to his name. When Hogan goes to court to garnish his assets, A.J. fires off a letter to Hogan's lawyers offering to send him his rice cooker as part of his payment. Just a few years ago, Delario was at the top of his game, golden boy and editor-in-chief of Gawker.com. Now, in his early 40s, unemployed and broke, and all those people he once wrote snarky stories about are no doubt thrilled to witness his very public fall. After more suits and countersuits, Gawker and Bollea do eventually settle for $31 million. As a condition of that settlement, Gawker agrees not to appeal again. Even if they could have afforded to appeal, would they have won in a different courtroom with a different judge and jury? We'll never know. After this settlement, Gawker Media sells its subsidiary websites like Deadspin, Gizmodo, and Jezebel to Univision for $135 million. Within days of the purchase, Univision says it will not operate Gawker.com moving forward. The brand is too damaged. Gawker, as it existed before the trial, is dead. Gone. Teal ruined a company just because he wanted to. Because unlike most of the rest of us, he could afford to. News headlines and op-eds decry the failure of the courts to uphold and protect the First Amendment. Like this one from the Los Angeles Times. Go ahead and hate Gawker, but don't cheer its downfall. The thing is, lots of people didn't particularly like Gawker when it existed. But now that it's been shut down, many people feel bad about it. When Nick Denton learns that Peter Thiel is the man behind the curtain, he is surprised. And not surprised. Teal and Denton had known each other for a bit in the early days in Silicon Valley. Both men are gay. Nick fights back with the most powerful tool he has, his own writing. He posts an open letter addressed directly to Peter Teal. I can see how tempting it would be to use Silicon Valley's most abundant resource, a vast fortune, against the harsh words of the writers of a small New York media company. We have our devices. You have yours. Among the millions of posts published by Gawker and other properties since the company was found, there have undoubtedly been occasions we overstepped the line in offsetting the fawning coverage of tech luminaries and others. Sometimes our stories swing too far for my taste towards snark. But this vindictive, decade-long campaign is quite out of proportion to the hurt you claim. Peter... This is twisted. Even were you to succeed in bankrupting Gawker Media, the writers you dislike, and me, just think what it will mean. The world is already uncomfortable with the unaccountable power of the billionaire class. We and those you have sent into battle against us have been stripped naked. Our texts, online chats, and finances revealed through the press and the courts. In the next phase, you too will be subject to a dose of transparency. 
However philanthropic your intention and careful the planning, the details of your involvement will be gruesome. I'm going to suggest an alternative approach. The best regulation for speech in a free society is more speech. Then, Nick invites Peter Thiel to a public debate. We can hold the discussion in person with a moderator of your choosing in front of an audience or in a written discussion on some neutral platform. Just tell me where and when. The court cases will proceed as long as you fund them, and I am sure the war of headlines will continue. But even if we put down weapons just for a brief truce, let us have a more constructive exchange. Peter Thiel has never taken Nick Denton up on the offer. It's three weeks after the verdict at the Vinoy Renaissance Resort and Golf Club, a sprawling pink Mediterranean building on a quiet street just outside of downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Tourists hustle through the lobby in polos and swimsuit cover-ups. Just off the lobby, a large bar welcomes visitors to Marchand's Bar and Grill. The restaurant has a veranda overlooking Tampa Bay, where you can sip on an alcoholic Vinoy punch and a small room for private parties. Tonight, that private room is booked. Hulk Hogan is celebrating his court victory with his attorneys, and they have ordered a very large bottle of extremely expensive champagne. I just, I want to thank you guys so much. It's been a long road, years, you know, and you guys... We're there the whole time, supporting me through some dark days. All of you. David, Charles, Kenneth, Kenny, you you killed it, brother. You killed it. Seriously. Oh, the champagne's here. Oh, bring that in here, honey. Can we open it? Let's open it. Yeah, for sure. Let's pop that shit open. Okay. I want to say something. Let me tell you something real quick. I just want to thank God, first of all. And I want to say this victory is a victory for all of us. We fought for the rights of every man. And we effing won. All of us. Cheers. Cheers. A waitress shyly approaches the table. Mr. Hogan... What is it, darling? Can I have your autograph? Hell yeah, come on over here. There you go. Terry Bollea went to court to tell a winning story about an everyman up against the media and the urban elite. Hulk Hogan is out giving autographs and celebrating his court victory over $500 bubbly. You can, if you wish... See this trial as a trial about the First Amendment and online media. And it is that. But it's also a microcosm of this moment in American culture. So, maybe this is a tale about the demise of a free press. Or, maybe, it was just another celebrity fight night. Yeah, brother.
This is episode three of three of Hogan versus Gawker. To hear more seasons of Legal Wars, listen exclusively with Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus for more exclusives, binges, early access, and ad-free listening. Available in the Wondery app. The host of Legal Wars is Hill Harper. Alex Minahan wrote this episode. Our legal consultant is Katie Burghart Kramer, and our researcher is Caitlin Kramen. Legal Wars is produced by Stephanie Jens and George Lavender. Post-production by Spoke Media. Executive producers are Marsha Louie and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Legal Wars is based on real court cases. The arguments are real. We've combed through court transcripts, newspaper reports, and interviews with some of the key players, but it's not always possible to know exactly what happened. Some of the scenes are dramatizations based on research. Hope you enjoyed the show. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.